Good morning, my name is David. The reason I asked is that Jeremiah spoke of a very gentle aspect of Revelation 19 and Etienne has been merciful and given me a short reading which is a more gruesome part of chapter 19. And I wonder if it's suitable for young people, but we'll go with it. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He has a name written on him. Sorry, he is dressed in a fine robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Thank you, David. You're right. It is quite confronting, sobering sort of stuff, isn't it? <clears throat> mm. The 
let me play a game then first. <laughs> we'll lighten the mood a bit. It's a way of introducing what we're going to talk about today, but two truths and a lie. I like apple pie. My wife made a really nice apple crumble for us for Friday night for the Christmas in July event. And we ate that apple crumble with, it was heated up with ice cream. Yes, very yum. Well, the, the pie was heated up and then we put ice cream on it. And that makes it really nice, doesn't it? Just sort of, yes, yes, yes. We didn't put ice cream on and then heat it up. <laughs> uh, two of those things are true. One of those things is a lie. Which is the lie? Be more specific, Rob. Oh, yes, yes. Um, do you like ice cream, David? I like ice cream too, but Rob's right. The lie is I don't like apple pie. It's, no, it's not good. Nobody should cook fruit. Fruit shouldn't be cooked. Um, <laughs> you agree, right? Yes. You disagree? Fruit shouldn't be cooked. It's, it's not right. It, it should be eaten fresh from the tree, but um, that's fine. Um, two truths and a lie. You know, uh, the... the <laughs> Why I chose that game is this. A lot of what goes on in this passage has to do with truth and lies, okay? And, and, and let me throw a truth out to you that I think is a, ah, oh, it's a greatly disputed truth in the world. Many people would look at that statement and say, that is not true. The Bible, for its part, is saying this is absolutely true. And here, here's what it is. That's sort of the, 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 the game of the, of the message. I don't have a clicker. Oh, I do, Pete, but thank you. Here's the, here's the truth. The truth is, sometime in the future, don't know when, each and every single one of us will have a full and unrestricted experience of Christ. That day is going to be either the best thing or the worst thing that you have ever experienced. Right? That's the truth. That's the truth that this passage roughly wants to tell us. I'll unpack it a bit, give you a bit of details. I heard a great question asked there before. Okay, let's go with the first statement. Each and every single one of us will have a full and unrestricted experience of Christ. Now, remember that I told you on day one, if you've been here for many weeks, um, I told you that most of Revelation, most of the book of Revelation, um, in terms of the time period of history that it speaks to, it speaks of now. It speaks all of what it mentions takes place between when Jesus is resurrected and when Jesus returns again. That's, that's sort of where it all plays out. But there's a little bit of it that actually talks about the future. What's going to happen in the future? So it's not concerned with what happens now and what has been happening for the last 2,000 years. It's, it's, it's telling us about the future, stuff that is yet to take place. This part that we're dealing with today plus next week talks about 
some of the future stuff, right? Next week I'll do a lot more of the controversial stuff around that. Today I want to be a bit more basic, okay? And it tells us, this part, that the first part of our truth. You're going to have each person, one day, at one point, after their death, will be consciously resurrected and they're going to, we're going to encounter the person, Jesus Christ, who is revealed and told to us as per the Christian message as God's son. And the question I have for you is, what do you think that experience will be like for you personally? You might say, well, two truths and a lie. I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's all rubbish. It's all mythology. It's not going to happen. If that's what you're thinking, it's good that you're here. Thank you. You might be like a Christian band who wrote a song some many years ago. Um, they called Mercy Me. They wrote a song I could only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Lots can be said about what it will be like, but I want to draw your attention to something really odd and something very interesting in this passage that we read about Jesus. He's the rider on the white horse, by the way, who's returning. And the whole image is that he's returning as a judge. And he's going to be the judge deciding the sort of eternal placement of every living being who ever lived. And he's given a bunch of names in this passage. There's one name that's very interesting, and can I get you to look at verse 12, if you, if you have your Bible still open or your, or, or, your, or your phone. Here's what it says in verse 12. It says, the rider on the horse has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. That's odd, isn't it? He has a name that nobody knows, a name for Jesus that nobody knows. I, I found that very interesting. It begged us, I think, they asked, to ask the question, what's going on here? What's the meaning of this unknown name? Now, stay with me here, if you would. Um, as with all things in Revelation, this usually has to do with some Old Testament imagery. In the Old Testament, we read these two verses. From Isaiah, this is hundreds of years before Jesus, right? The nations, in other words, everybody will see your vindication. They'll see you. All kings, all those in power will see your glory and you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. That's sort of talking about the people of God, right? The church. On that day, the people who belong to Jesus will be called by a new name. And then in Revelation, we read this, Oh, sorry, earlier in Revelation chapter 2, in one of the churches, uh, Jesus says this, 
I will also give that person who's faithful to me, who believes that I am true, a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. There's some weird stuff going on here. There's a name for Jesus that's known only to him. There's a name going to be given to the people of Jesus that's going to be known only to them. And that name's only going to be known sometime in the future, <laughs> which, which to me is very, very fascinating stuff. And we've got to ask, like I said, maybe the next question, well, what on earth is that name? Why is that name not known now? Why is it an unknown name? Is this some sort of weird mystery or is there a point? Is there something that with this book in its weird way is trying to communicate to us? Well, I think there is a great point here. And the answer lies in what it means to know. When the Bible says that you're going to know something, it doesn't mean that you're just going to have some cognitive understanding of its information. It means that you're going to fully experience and encounter the fullness of that thing. So it would talk about my relationship with my wife, Dana, and it would say that I know Dana. I also know David. But I don't know David in the same way that I know Dana. When the Bible says about me as a husband that I know Dana, it means that I know her fully and she knows me fully at least as full as I hope and think and like to think two people can know each other in this sort of relationship of marriage. You see, there's, a, there's an experiential fullness about what it means to really know someone. And here's then the meaning, if we take that to what's going on here. There's something about who Jesus is that will only be known in its full splendor and satisfaction <laughs> and enjoyment that we'll only get then. We'll only get the full whole nine yards of, of what it means to be a child of God, to be filled with His Spirit, to, <laughs> to live, to participate in the divine nature. You go and look at every single of the 73 verses in the New Testament that talks about what it's like to be in Christ, to be a child of God. <laughs> you look at the promises of the experiences and the stuff that we're meant to have and that we do have in Christ as Christians. And the fullness of each and every single one of those things will become real to an extent that we can only imagine today. We will then know Christ fully unrestricted, okay? That is the truth that the Bible claims. Now, of course, the next position is we need to work out where are we at in relation to that truth? There's two possibilities. For the person who believes this, who says, yes, I believe this is true, not a lie. It's true. This is going to be the most satisfyingly glorious experience you can only ever imagine. 
Okay? Listen to some of the Bible verses that, that um, a guy called Paul tells us. He says, For now I see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know, in other words, experience, only in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. My relationship with God then, my experience of God then is going to be something astoundingly incredible. Now, it's really only glimpses. And so if you're a Christian, I mean, you know God now. It's not like you know nothing of Him. But you know that your Christian life and your encounter with God ebbs and flows. There are moments where you feel really, really certain and assured in your joy and your hope of God's nearness. He's with you. He helps you. He, he lifts you up. But then there are times where you go, I don't know where God is. This is broken. This isn't right yet, you know. That's, that's now. It's broken. You see only parts. We know only parts. Not then. Then it's fully known. As you are fully known, He will be fully known. What's more, Paul says in Philippians... I consider everything I know now a loss. Rubbish, he says later on, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Christian, on that day, you're going to know him. You're going to have all the empty longings for the fullness of Christ. Fully and completely filled. Now, I'm not going to do more on this point because the rest of Revelation, chapter 21, chapter 22, gives you a teaser of what that's going to be like. Right? For now, chapter 19 really works more with the second category, if you like. You see, it's either going to be that glorious a day for you or, and here's the stern and uncomfortable part of chapter 19. If you're saying, look, I can't be bothered to think whether this is true or not, ignorance, or whether you in arrogance say, this is definitely not true, this is going to be one of the saddest tragedies of your life. In fact, the saddest by a long mile. Right? Why is that? Well, Christ in this chapter 19 is speaking as a judge who judges with a sword. Did you notice something interesting about this sword? Maybe yell back at me. What was interesting about this sword, particularly where it came from? Have a look. Yeah, from his mouth. Interesting, isn't it? What does that tell us about this sword? Just what do you think? Just think on your feet. Word of God, is, this is something to do with speaking, right? You go to Ephesians, um, love Ephesians on this. Um, I don't think I have Ephesians on my slide. No, sorry. And Ephesians, it talks about the, 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 the um, armor, right? Spiritual armor. And it identifies the sword as the word of God. The, wo- the word of God is the sword with which Christ judges stay with me as we're going to put it all together here. You've got a judge who is called truth 
the word of God, judging with the sword coming from his mouth. You know what we need to picture here? Usually when we picture judgment day, and this passage and its imagery gives you a reason to think that way, I will definitely grant that, but this is the sort of stuff that we think. We, we think of Christ coming with a sword. We think of a lot of bloodletting. Think of the images of Braveheart and of um, gore. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's tough to sort of take in and, and reconcile with who God is. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to make light of what it's going to be like in terms of judgment to not be in Christ on that day. I, I, the pain of that and the, all of that is real. Okay? But I want us to back up a little bit here just for now. Because before we imagine a bloody battlefield scene, we first need to imagine a courtroom. Okay? The contest in your mind and in your heart and in our world is a contest between truth and lies. What in this world is true? And what is a lie? Right? <laughs> this, is how we, this is how we should think. We shouldn't think of this battle in Revelation as a battle between Christ and Satan and that the strongest one is going to win. Because did you notice this rider already has blood on his robe? The blood has already been spilt. He has already won on the cross where he died for the forgiveness of your sin. No, the last battle is just about handing in the verdict, showing the truth to be the truth. Showing, quite frankly, that Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords. His word is the truth. What do I mean by his word? Just if you're new to church, and this is all very strange to you, simply this. God has created you. God loves you. You and I and every single human being didn't return that love with the love that he deserved. We pushed him away. The punishment for that was that we should live eternally outside of a relationship with him. Yet he loves you more. Comes in his son Jesus, takes that punishment for you on the cross where he dies, is raised again to life. And if you believe it, if you believe it, he says you're mine comes and lives in you, starts to change you, starts to let you know him already now, starts to satisfy you, starts to change you, starts to improve you, starts to give you all the joy that is his. That's roughly the Christian gospel. And that, my friends, is the sword of the word of God, or at least the summary of it. Your only crime on that day when you meet Christ, for which you will be found guilty, is failing to believe it. Failing to believe the truth as truth. Did you notice the graphic imagery of the, the judgment of the beast and the false prophet? And after that comes this statement, everybody who did not believe the gospel as truth were killed 
with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. On that day, you will know the truth about Christ. It is the truth that will be your death blow. Not some angry or capricious God, not some punishment system by which you are punished according to what you've done. No, no. The fact that it was true all along. (laughs) And with the writer of the Hebrews, we need to ask the question, how can we ignore such a great salvation? How can we ignore such a great truth that you have meaning and value and purpose in a God who made you? That there is full understanding for for the brokenness in yourself and in the world that really resides in you, in your own sinfulness. I know that's a bit harsh, but it's also extremely liberating. And yet that God loves you more. Love Charles Spurgeon's quote as he looked on the cross and saw the blood of Jesus spilled for him, that he may re-enter the knowledge of God. He sees the love of God. It's grand and stunning and glorious and beautiful truth, my friends. So let me finish now. Let me finish by just calling for our response. You may ask when this day will come, when you and I will meet Christ, We don't know when it will come. But it's not important when it comes. What's important is that the 9th of July, 2023, is still a day that he has gifted us to hear and see this stunning truth. (laughs) We see it again today. And so maybe if you're new to all of this, you've not believed that this is true up to today. You you don't know anything of this truth, but you're here. Can I ask you to please, today, not let this go? Don't let it go. Would you think about God? Would you think about the fact that there is really a God? who does really love you, who is absolutely all-worthy, and you can know him, and that you want to know him and will know him on that day when you meet him face to face. That's what today is about. It's what today is for. It's what every day is given for. Really? Why is God slow in letting that day come? Well, he's not slow. He's patient. He's gracious. Allows us day by day to respond to this truth, to say, yes, I believe it, it's true, and on that day it's going to be the greatest day of my life. Absolutely. Would you respond, please, today, by simply, well, at least think about it, and if you really are ready, and if God has made you ready today, pray. Say, Lord God, I want to know you. That's it. And he will do the rest. Right? Secondly, maybe you do know something of this truth already. There's great testimonies of this truth, such as we've heard this morning and many in this room. But you know, at the moment, the knowledge of God is vague. You're suffering in its 
the weakness of the signal, you know, in this season of life. Would you just hang on there, please? With this knowledge of the fact that the truth is going to come out one day, spur you on, motivate you. It will come out, especially if you're getting ridiculed for your faith. <laughs> How can you believe that's true, you idiot? The truth's going to come out. It will come out. So you hold on. You cling. You persevere. I mean, that's the point for the Christians who first read this. Hold on. The truth will come out. All right, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we confess that the scenes of thinking about the end of time and the final judgment of every human soul is a thought that scares us, it's uncomfortable, it saddens us, and it's right that it should. I confess I hardly want to think about it. And yet, Lord, it's true. It's true that the day is coming. It's true that we rightly should think about that day. And Father, I pray that the truth of it will be a truth that every person in this room today will take to heart. I pray that it's a truth that you enable all of us to believe in. Not because we're afraid, but rather because we see the beauty of the truth. The stunning love you have for us. Rather because we understand perhaps the, the grossness of us not loving you and having rejected you. Rather be grateful for the extreme forgiveness you're offering. Let us see it, please. Let us grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ for us to such a point that it's a no-brainer to say that, yes, we believe that it's true. Yes, on that day, that's where I want to stand and say, yep, finally, the truth is visible. It's out. We see it. We see you. And we experience you in full. We ask for this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to sing one more song and then Jeremiah, finish off.